So like I said, we're going we're to be talking about elders, um, talking about church leadership, church governance, the organization of the local church. Um, and, and I teased at the beginning it would be of special interest to us, which will be, of course, uh, I think a little bit of an understatement, because as you might have noticed, we do not have them. Um, but we are, we've talked about this in the meeting, but, but we are beginning the process of looking for and vetting and then eventually appointing elders. And so what I'd like for us to do is to take some time uh, every few weeks to go to the Bible and really look at what Scripture teaches regarding uh, the elders, the shepherds, the overseers, whatever your favorite term is. But we'll, we'll look at a number of questions on this topic, like why this model, why this structure exists, uh, who put it in place, what their exact role is and is not, and how they relate, of course, to the role of deacons. This is another office uh, delineated by Scripture. <clears throat> And then, then, as we really take on the effort of studying the, the corpus of Scripture on this topic, we can be sure that what we're doing, that the process we are engaging in, that we are undertaking, and the men that we select are in aligned with God's Word and in accordance with God's will. So as I said, I, I, know, I know I know that this is a topic that can cause much groaning, but it is very necessary to ensure that we are governing and running and leading the church in a way that is in accordance with God's word. So we begin our lesson tonight in Acts. So if you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Acts is, of course, as it is named, after the Acts of the Apostles. And the Apostles, specifically Paul and Peter, throughout the book, go around planting and then ministering to several local congregations. And in Acts 20, we have a great little example of Paul addressing the elders that he's appointed in these churches. And we know later that he writes about exactly what the qualifications and the nature of these offices are, but we get a good preview of what their job is and the issues that they deal with in Acts chapter 20. So in Acts chapter 20, go down to verse 17. And verse 17 begins a new, uh, new section that will actually be titled, Paul Speaks to the Elders. But verse 17 reads, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And I start there because I want you to notice that right off the top, Paul has something on his mind. He has something that he feels like he needs to address. And in past times, yes, he went straight to the church. He went before the whole congregation. But here, here he is establishing the precedent of going straight to the elders. So we already see that there is some form of representative authority among the elders, and he continues. He continues in this chapter, really, really laying out his credentials. We might say he lays out his resume, his own testimony. He explains what he's done and how he's really gotten to this point in his ministry, just kind of sharing the story of his work and what he's done so far. And down, if you skim all the way down to verse 28, staying in chapter 20, but go to verse 28. This is where he really kind of digs into it with them. He charges them with something. He gives a bit of a special warning. In verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he has obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. 
And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So there's a few distinct points and observations I want to recognize from Paul's small little pep talk here to the, to the elders at Ephesus. First, notice that he says their calling, their, their role is not of man. We, the, the members and the ministers of this church, did not decide for ourselves that the church needed to have overseers. But the Bible says specifically that it was the Holy Spirit who ordained them, who made them overseers. And I think it's important for us to remember that this is a position that is established by God. It is God who saw necessary for the flock to have shepherds, to have overseers, protectors. And so the first thing we need to recognize is that this is a position that is established or ordained by God through the work of the Holy Spirit. Which really dovetails very nicely with our next point, which is that the flock does need protecting. That God designed the flock, the body, the church to have shepherds because the elders, uh, because the flock needs protecting. And, and I know sometimes, as, especially as established Christians, when we are very certain of our faith, we can, we can almost start to see ourselves as unshakable. We start to get this mindset that, well, I, don't, I know some Christians might need help, but well, certainly not me. But this is not a, a question of, of having or lacking confidence. I want to be clear about that. There's nothing wrong with having spiritual confidence. But we need to recognize that the flock as a whole, the body, the members of Christ's church, we are under constant attack from wolves, from the work of Satan, who the Bible tells us is, is prowling about, seeking whom he may devour. Just recently, just recently on Sunday morning, we've been studying Jude and 2 Peter. And if you've been in that class, you realize how often we talk about the, the danger of false teaching. The danger and the impact that can have and what it will do to a church. Well, the primary role of shepherds is to protect the flock. One of the things they protect the flock from is those threats from within and threats from without. Which would include, of course, false teaching. But I bring this up because I think it's easy to slip into uh, the mindset or truthfully the fallacy of, well, that just can't happen here. That Christians falling away or uh, the breaking up of families, parents losing relationships with their children, people just kind of who are struggling with the grind of life and find themselves slipping and falling away. When we are doing well, we are thriving spiritually, it can be easy to fall into the mindset that, well, that kind of stuff doesn't happen here. And I'd like to remind us that everybody thinks that until it does. And it's usually happening to the, the places and the people and at the times that we least expect it and are least ready for it. So we need to understand that we are not immune. Old Christians, new Christians, young believers, old believers, all can fall away, can fall out of touch, can grow disconnected from the body of Christ. And so all sheep benefit from the flock having overseers. And this role of overseers is established by the Holy Spirit to protect the flock. I want to shift gears here for a moment. The next passage I want us to look at for a little bit is, is in 1 Timothy. So go ahead and turn over to 1 Timothy. Paul is writing, of course, to, to young Timothy, who is a young evangelist, trying to follow in the footsteps of Paul planting and ministering to local congregations. 1 Timothy 3 is probably the traditional passage about elders. 
It's the most complete, most detailed passages of Scripture we have on the qualifications and on the work of elders. We could say, really, this is the standard passage for this teaching. Understanding the qualifications of elders is just as important as understanding the role that they play. Uh, I would say the two go hand in hand. The work that needs to be done and who it is that is able to do it. Um, a misunderstanding of either will lead to poor church leadership. Consider just the example of a job application, right? If you're applying for a job, especially nowadays in the very corporate, very digital age, if you apply for that job, it has two things. I can almost guarantee it on any job posting. That is the qualifications, what you need to do that job, and the role, what will be expected of you when you do that job. In this way, the work of the church is no different. So aside from perhaps a mistake or a misunderstanding, uh, relaxation of these standards, relaxation of the responsibilities and requirements of elders can lead to poor church leadership. It is not unheard of, of churches in positions of need or, or desperation, to appoint elders and appoint a man this, with the idea that, oh, well, he will grow into the position. Or for a church to turn a blind eye to one or two of the requirements because, well, he's a, he's a great guy and he fits everything else and he's just so involved and his family's. That's not how God intended this to work. We know from study of the Word of God that no command is without reason, and this is ever more true when it comes to outlining the roles of servants and shepherds in the church. They are set up as a, as a framework, as a guideline for a reason. And when we stray from those, we get in danger of, of moving away from God's example. Unfortunately, unfortunately, picking leaders who meet these criteria does not guarantee a church success. I want, I want to be realistic here. Just because we pick elders that fit does not guarantee the church's success. However, failing to appoint leaders who meet them almost certainly guarantees our decay and our failure as a church. And so there are reasons behind these requirements for, for the men who are to take positions of leadership, of shepherds, of overseers within the church. So let's, let's dig into the text and let's start looking at what these exactly are. From 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> First Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So Paul is setting the tone right from the top. He says to desire the office of an overseer is to desire a noble task. Interestingly, Interesting. I want you to recognize that Paul does not say that a man must desire this office to be qualified. He does say that to do so is to desire or to take on a noble task. Of course, it, just from a practical standpoint, it is good for a Christian to desire to be a leadership position in the church, not just from a point of ambition or, or self-glorification. I don't mean to, to dig into sort of the sin of pride. But if you just think about the requirements it takes for an elder and the, what the image of a perfect or righteous elder is, it is certainly good for any young man to desire to fit those qualifications. I, I almost can think of if, um, well, I thought of an illustration, but it's not very great. I don't want to confuse anybody, so we'll stick with the text. Always a good plan. 
but to, but to desire to fit these qualifications which themselves outline a qualified man, a good leader, a righteous person. It has things like not quarrelsome and to be gentle. These are all good qualities. To, so to desire to be someone who can fit those qualities is to desire a noble task. I think contentment is something to be very wary of when we talk about whether or not people desire to serve in certain positions in the church. Um, before I, I've, I've referenced many careers because I've had a bunch of them. I'm not just making these up, I promise. But before I was here and before I was a mechanic, which I've talked about before, I was a, a manager at a restaurant for many years. I was a manager in a college town in Stillwater, Oklahoma. And uh, I was always suspicious of people who had been there like three to five years and knew how to do one thing. At one point in time, I had a, a young man who was uh, really who was a cashier, and I'm not trying to be uh, talked down about anybody, trying to be condescending. He was a cashier, worked there five years, and at the end of his five-year tenure, he knew how to do exactly one thing, and that was take your money and take your order. And at a certain point, I had to have a conversation. I was like, he's five states away. I was like, Matt. <laughs> I thought about changing the name, but I mean, he's probably fine. Um, I was like, Matt, you. Do you not want to learn how to like run food, how to make food, how to take dishes, how to close up the store, how to open the store, how to run the bakery? No? No, this is fine. Well, what do you want to do in the next five years? Do you want to still be a cashier at a restaurant in a college town? And, and again, I, I want you to understand, I'm not, I'm not trying to make fun of anybody for their job. I'm not, but if you don't have at least a little bit of ambition in anything you do, in anything, I mean, if you don't have some desire to grow, to learn, to take on more responsibilities, to, to develop yourself, to learn new skills, to take on a little bit more than what you came in with, I'm going to question that. And I think really without, I don't want to overreach and I don't want to say something that's not in the text. But if we lack ambition spiritually, if you're not growing, you're going to find yourself eventually becoming stagnant. That's just a, it's kind of how this thing works. You can only do one thing. You can either go up, go down, or stay the same, right? And if you don't want to go up, hopefully you're at least not going down. You're at least kind of keeping where you are. Well, you, you do that. If you don't go up and you don't go down, you do that long enough, you are going to find yourself in a position of stagnancy. And for weeks now, as we've talked about the importance of transformation, of becoming new creations, another idea that we have revisited over and over is the idea of spiritual growth. And I bring that up because he, he, he does say at the top that to aspire this office is to desire a noble task. But notice, he does not say to have this office, you must desire it. It is certainly noble to aspire to the qualifications of becoming an elder. And I think in the words of Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that. In Revelation, I say that, I lied, sorry. In Revelation, chapter 3, there's the letter to the Laodiceans. And again, I feel like this is another one of those staple lessons in the church. If you've heard a lesson on it, you've hardly heard a thousand. But the language in Revelation 3 is very... Vulgar might be too strong a word, but it's very harsh. It's very to the point. It's very cutting. The Lord says, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. Would you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. And I want to 
I want to clarify something a little bit. I, I've, heard some, I've heard some say that, like, well, Jesus would rather you be good or evil than stagnant. That's not what's happening here. That is kind of a ridiculous claim just on the surface. But I've heard that lesson before. In Rome, very famously, they had these massive aqueduct systems. And they would bring water from other sources. And Laodicea was kind of in this, in almost this valley, this flat land between this more popular region over here and this other region over here. And the hot springs they would bring in from town, the hot springs were nice for bathing and cleansing. And I mean, no one's, no one's ever gotten up in the morning and said, oh, I just need a nice lukewarm shower, right? <laughs> so, the, so they had hot springs over in this town, and they would sort of pipe them through their aqueducts to Laodicea. And the people down by the water, well, they had like nice ice cold water, which is great for drinking and, you know, refreshing yourself. And so they would pipe that in on the aqueduct. But of course, Laodicea is between these two towns which means by the time the hot water got to them, it was pretty much room temp, and by the time the cold water got to them, it was pretty much room temp. And he's not saying, I wish you were hot or cold, to say, well, I wish you were good or evil instead of nothing. He's saying, I wish you were hot or cold so that you could be useful. But he says, because you are useless, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now I think I probably had all about to say about just the ambition and the desire for spiritual growth on this particular topic. But let's keep reading in 1 Timothy 3. From verse 2, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach. I'm going to pause right there because this is a bit of an unusual turn of phrase again. But, but, but to be above reproach means you cannot simply be innocent. That it almost is to say it's not enough just to do no wrong, but conduct yourself in such a way that no one could even level a reasonable accusation against you. I, I, I'm in school. I have one more semester left. And one of our, I say one, in almost every practical congregational level ministry class I've had, we're a room full of young men. We're ranging from the age of, I'd say, 18 to 28, 29. And a very practical lesson I have heard in every single one of those classes is do not put yourself in a bad position. And you have these young men who are like, well, I would never do anything wrong. What do you mean? And this is true if you want to be a youth minister, if you want to be a couples minister, if you want to be a marriage counselor. They said, well, do not put yourself in a bad position. They said, this is not about your virtue. This is not about your honesty. But don't put yourself in a position where someone can even level an accusation against you. And that's really the same kind of thing that he's talking about when he's talking about the role of elders. He says, be above reproach. Don't even put yourself in a position where someone could accuse you of wrongdoing. We all know somebody. If I'm being honest, I probably fit this description in, in, in my past at different times. But who either in school or in the workplace or in any situation, whatever the rules are, they're always looking to get to the very edge of those rules. Right? I think we talked about it a little bit this morning, that the idea of like if, if someone draws a line here, we all know somebody whose first instinct is to stand right here. And this idea of being above approach says, no, quit with that, stop with that. Be, be so upright, so righteous that you are not even possibly to be accused of wrongdoing. And so Paul says those fit for this role must be above reproach. Other translations say blameless or of a good reputation. He continues in verse 2. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, not gen- but gentle, 
not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. So several of these things, several of these things we could really consider synonymous, right? There's a lot of overlap. They seem to kind of be talking about the same thing. Uh, But there's a few I want to single out and just make note of as we're walking through this text here. Firstly, the husband of one wife. Well, it seems straightforward enough. I would bet this is probably one of the most overlooked qualifications of an elder. I've seen churches take good men, men of strong faith, men of good capability, who even had a scriptural reason for divorce in their past, so they ignore the sticking point. And I want us to again be clear that this is, if you do not fit the qualifications of an elder, this is not a passing of judgment on you. This is not saying you are inferior. This is not saying you are not spiritually worthy of something. It's just one of those areas where these are the qualifications God has set, and who are we to take away from those qualifications? This is not about judgment. This is about being in accordance with the will of God. I mean, anyone who knows me and the journey I got to where I am knows I am the last person to pass judgment on these sort of issues, truthfully. And so regardless of what your particular background or situation is, if, if these do not fit you, by all means, this is, not, this is not a polemic against you or where you stand. But we have a responsibility to choose for ourselves people who are fitting with the Word of God. And it's as simple as that. They're there for a reason. Another distinction I want to uh, note here is it says, able to teach. I think this is a, a particularly interesting designation um, because if the, if the husband of one wife is one I said that is the most often overlooked, I would, I would almost say I think this is the one that is most over-enforced. And that sounds backwards, but hear me out. Um, interestingly, I, I do not see other members of the church disqualifying good candidates on the basis of this verse. What I most normally see is men disqualifying themselves. They say, oh, I can never do that. I could never stand up there and teach people. I could never take on that kind of responsibility. Which, if we're being honest, I think can be revealing of a deeper problem. If, and this is if, I'm not saying this applies, I'm still speaking sort of in the abstract here, but if we have several strong men of the church, capable men, men of sound doctrine, who have led their families well, who have obedient children, as the text says, who have who've gotten everything else and checked off all the boxes and say, ah, oh, I would... I would love to serve as an elder, but I can't. I, I just can't teach. Then I think we need to have a conversation there. Turn, turn with me real quickly to Hebrews 5. Flip over to Hebrews 5. I know we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Many say Paul. But it is nonetheless filled with advice, with doctrinal issues, with direction for both uh, the lost and the members of the body of Christ. But look at Hebrews 5.11. Hebrews 5.11, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. I have said I found this particular qualification apt to teach interesting. Because the Hebrews writer seems to indicate that there should come a time in any Christian's life where they feel comfortable teaching others. And I would not put this yoke on new believers. As the writer says, the milk is for children. But when we have been spiritually strengthened, when we are weaned off of whatever spiritual milk looks like for us, and we have become mature Christians, 
the next logical step for us is to be people who are capable of teaching. And it's the most puzzling dynamic to me to know of men who have grown up in the church, who have raised their families in the church, who have obedient children, who, like I said, are not quarrelsome, who meet all these other vocations, to disqualify themselves on the basis of not being capable to teach. Because truthfully, if you are old enough, if you've been a Christian long enough to have grown up a Christian, been raised a Christian, raised Christian children, you should be capable of teaching. That's not just me talking. That's from the text. Again, I think of the letter to the Laodicean church that I think we should be very fearful of becoming lukewarm. I know what James 3.1 says, yes, not many of you should become teachers because they are held to a stricter judgment. But I think we should be a lot more scared of the commands of being lukewarm than the command of James 3.1. I think I think James 3.1 almost used as an excuse. He says to desire this office is to desire a noble task. If a man feels unfit to teach, then by all means, he himself should be taught so that he may feel comfortable teaching. But I do not believe sidestepping of this growth process is an option. If you are on the highway of sort of spiritual growth, there is the spiritual milk, spiritual maturity. Somewhere along the way, you have somebody to teach you. If you are not there yet, be in a position, you have a mentorship relationship like the Paul and Barnabas that is all throughout the text. Find someone to help you grow. But getting off the growth highway entirely is not, scripturally speaking, is not an option. But I think a lot of us are very content to pull off on the shoulder and park our cars right where we are. Because we're afraid of the growth that's in front of us. We're afraid of asking for help so that we can grow. And as we talk about this, it's so important to understand that this, just as the scripture calls us to have qualified elders and it calls us to have men who are capable and who are spiritually mature, being spiritually immature and remaining spiritually immature is just not an option. I think for the sake of time and perhaps content, it is appropriate to stop right 